Hello and welcome to the Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast exploring the latest decks, trends, and strategy for Magic's modern format. Every week and every episode, we look into topics and ideas for the casual spike. People playing at your local game store, Magic Online, maybe even Magic Arena. And join us as we level up together on this journey toward becoming masters of the multiverse. My name is Stanislav, here in Chicago, Illinois. <laughs> and the line from Denver, Colorado, is Shane, the haha boy himself, beeps. I'm just imagining playing Modern on Magic Arena one of these years. I'm just kind of... It sounds incredibly I just, awful. I can't, I can't, I can't <laughs> wait to buy in. Like, I'm just thinking like maybe they could let us do like 100 bucks, and I get like black green midrange or something. I just have no idea how it's ever going to happen, but I can dream. I want to dream about our next co-host, Dave Big Daddy Harburger, here with me in Chicago, Illinois. How are you doing? Well, I made it back for episode two. Uh, sleep deprivation has not gotten to me yet, so I'm here with you guys and, and uh, you know, happy about it. I mean, Dave, you've got a family, man. You just live in, you live in constant sleep deprivation. That's right. I got up this morning at 4.30 a.m., and uh, it's now 9.45 p.m. And last but not least, on Chicago's north side is our token snowboy, as always, Zach. Cool hands. Cool hand. Huh? Call hand. How you doing, Stan? I'm doing good. There's a lot of rhyming in our intro. Keep it up, man. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, keep fighting the good fight. All right, so I'm super let, excited. Let me tell you about episode. the cards I have on my shelf. I just came by to introduce myself. <laughs> Ooh, wow! Freestyle and keep it up. We are so natural at this. It just keeps getting better and better. The, the banter sounds perfect right now. I'm into it. All right, I want to banter about modern and 2018. Shane, what do you have for us? Well, this episode, if I can get to my dang notes, so this episode, we're going to talk about uh, 2018. It was a wild year in modern. So, like, you know, modern is one of those formats that people like to say that you can keep playing your old cards and, you know, decks don't really change that much. You have to buy a, a card or two each time a set comes out. and But otherwise, you can just keep doing the same old thing. But I think that you really... 2018 has shown that that's really not the case. And I've seen that be not the case for the, you know, three or four years I've been playing modern. What do you guys think about that? You know, it's like just not only the change in 2018, but the change you've seen over the past few years. Uh, I think that's interesting. And I think you're right on some parts and incorrect on others. I think, I think that for uh, overall, I think that cards being good and modern is technically correct for the most part. Things like Jund or Abzan or other just like good stuff decks are consistent and you could, you know, in theory, pick one up from a few years ago and it would still be, you know, change out one, you know, bring in tireless tracker, take out some other card. And it's basically the same, you know, value deck. But I think for like the where the meta is and the best decks, those are new decks. We're talking about spirits, humans, uh, KCI, so and so forth. So those are decks you definitely have to buy into because the shells did not exist in the past. Sure. I think, I think, I guess what I'm getting at is kind of chasing the meta. Like if you, if you want to keep, 
you know, with those those newest decks, the decks that people haven't really figured out how to metagame against yet, the ones that they don't know how to play against and, uh, and sideboard against too much. I think keeping on the front lines is definitely something where you can't keep playing the same old thing. But you're right. Like where, you know, Jund hasn't changed too much. Maybe you get, you know, two or three Assassin's trophies, right? Um, sure. And I think what, when we talk about this 2018 breakdown, we'll see both old decks that have stuck around and new decks that have reared their head. And I'm really looking forward to talking about this with you guys, because I think it's, it's, I was actually a little bit surprised in terms of the the article that we'll talk about and some of the stats that we're going to look at. Yeah. Before we hop into that though, I wonder if we should stop for a minute and talk about some of the like notable events that happened this year in the format or things that just come to, to mind when people are thinking about, <clears throat> new cards or new strategies that were developed even before we talk about results. So, yeah. you know, maybe we should just go around and everybody throw out one notable thing that we can kind of look at the context of these uh, results in. And so my first one actually would probably be the unbanning of Jace and Bloodbraid Elf is something that you definitely want to keep in mind and two hotly anticipated cards that came off the, the ban list and sort of made waves and sort of didn't. I can't even believe that was this year. It seems like it was a year and a half ago already for, you know, how perhaps that speaks to how little the impact really ended up being. I mean, Jace was, people were fearing Jace being kind of the end all of modern. Like he was going to come in and just make blue control decks, just the, 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 the tier zero because of how powerful he is in a vacuum. But really, I think what it revealed is that you know, modern is is fast enough and resilient enough to stand up against Jace, at least Jace by himself. Didn't he sort of make UW Blue White Control a tier one deck though? And before it Jeskai was the stronger choice and Blue White was, you know, much more flexible and not as consistent. I would agree with that. Aren't you forgetting about Teferi? Well they came in stages, remember. So so Teferi was probably in April or so when you know when dominaria came out and jace came off the ban list in february so there was a little bit of time there where where it was just jace by himself and then i think teferi did push that over the over the limit kind of it just became a staple really really fast but that's another kind of like sub 1a that i would say of of the jace point is that his new pal teferi came along with him and um made a big impact as well yeah, I mean, Jace by himself was really just people, in my opinion, was just people saying like, holy crap, Jace is unbanned. I need to play with Jace, whether or not the power level and the win results were there. Do you guys remember those first few 5-0 lists after Jace was unbanned? And it was just a bunch of decks that were just slamming four of Jace and any color combination they could find. Yeah, for sure. There was like a Jace Bloodbraid Elf, like, was it like a Ponza strategy or like Jace was just in everything. It's Jace, Bloodbraid Elf, and um, Ancestral Vision because Bloodbraid can cascade into Ancestral Vision and just fire off. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of people who thought that that kind of teamer strategy would be a place to be at for a sort of control build. And it didn't really come to fruition. I almost wish that they would, you know, Watsi would unban more things that aren't ridiculously overly powered, like, you know, like our friend Eric Blush, he would be like, you know, please just unban Stoneforge Mystic, right? And if they, I mean, if they unban Stoneforge Mystic, we just have a few weeks to a few months of people just throwing Stoneforge Mystic into decks and seeing what's stuck. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's kind of a fun Wild West to exist in for a while. 
Yeah, I, I, I don't know if I agree with that. But any, anyway, so maybe that's enough about <clears throat> I Yeah, I think that card belongs on the banned list. But anyway, so who has another moment that they would throw out? Because uh, so I, I took my turn already. <laughs> Zach, I want, I want to hear from you, Zach. Yeah, so um, something I want to talk about is Ancient Stirrings. It was on a ton of decks, and it's a very, very, very good card. And I sort of feel like it's obviously people talk about it being banned a lot or it's a, a discussion. Uh, most cards let you see five cards for one card. And I feel like a lot of the big decks, which we'll touch on soon, but a lot of the big decks, including Tron and KCI and Lantern, etc., a lot of decks use it to quickly look through a deck. And it's just, it's interesting. So yeah, Ancient Stirrings, because I've been playing a decent amount of Tron this year, Ancient Stirrings is one of those cards where in Tron, it seems vaguely fair, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's as fair as it potentially can be because the power of it is that it lets you get a land because lands are colorless, right? But it also lets you get any artifact or colorless creature like an Eldrazi. Um, I think where, when it really got to be more annoying for people is when it, when these artifact based decks reared their head and became real metagame shares that are winning a substantial amount of games in ways that people found tedious and annoying. Right. So we have things like, so we have the, the initially was the lantern control based decks, which win in a slow and grindy manner. And we also have the rise of the Crark clan ironworks, or we're going to say KCI KCI for ease of pronunciation. The KCI decks really got more popular and continue to rise in popularity. And those also rely on ancient stirrings to, to dig. And what, so what ancient stirrings does, of course, is it, is it digs five cards, you know, and in the decks that are built around capitalizing on it, digging five cards for a single green mana is bonkers. Yeah. It's like the world's best ponder. Yeah, absolutely. It's unreal. It's insane. <laughs> In the decks that, that it fits, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's it's extremely powerful. Like in casting one, like it's it's one of those things where you can almost look at it as a land tutor. And then late game, it's a it's a great late game top deck because you can just, you know, oh, like uh, I need to find whatever, whatever creature I need to find here in my Tron deck, I can hopefully find. Or whatever artifact I might need to find here uh, to, to stop what the opponent's trying to do, I can try to dig for. I mean, five cards is the 12th of your deck. I mean, in, in the very beginning. And if you're down to 30 cards, five cards is what, like 18%. So that's, that's a ton of your deck. Yeah. My, one of my favorite moments from 2018 was the printing of damping sphere. And uh, oh, 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 he said, he said, he said it right card. this time. Yeah. Yeah. I finally nice. learned I, to be honest. I'm actually just looking at a page with damping sphere written in front of me. So it's easier to pronounce. <laughs> <laughs> did you just write it in sharpie huge on the wall in front of your recording booth so that you wouldn't forget this time shut up so yeah damping sphere what a great answer to so many different decks and uh it's not a silver bullet per se you know a lot of decks can still answer it but it's still a great tempo play and i think gives you game it gives some decks game against tron storm um, even maybe Arclight Phoenix uh, in a way that, you know, without the effect of Damping Sphere, you know, what else did we have before that? Chalice, kind of, sort of, similar? Yeah, I agree. Uh, as someone who runs Dampening Sphere, I feel like it's a like cool card. <laughs> what? Exactly. Read the card. 
Damping. There's no there's no en. Eh, I'm gonna say it how I'm gonna say it. The, the I think this card is very cool because it's it's very good, but it's not it's not so good that it stops them. Like uh, Tron can still get enough mana to hardcast a worm coil through it, and Storm can eventually find a way to bounce it. Like it buys you time, but it doesn't feel like a oh I bring this in and I beat Tron every time. Dude, as a Tron player, I will tell you, Damping Sphere is underrated. It is really hard to fight through if there's any clock on the other side. Like if you, sure, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like if you, I mean, if you stick a Damping Sphere and you don't have anything going on, like if you mold a five for like a Damping Sphere and have three lands and like a bolt, it's like it's not going to do anything. But if, right. you pre- if you present any clock, I hate facing down Damping Sphere, and it's like, and there's been plenty of times where. Damping Sphere has come out, and I haven't even expected it. We're to the point where if it's any vaguely unknown strategy I'm facing, or they could possibly have a Damping Sphere, I'm just sideboarding in Nature's Claims. But yeah, sure, why not? Shane, would you rather face Sphere or um, Stony Silence? Ooh, interesting. Oh, I think I think Stony Silence is slightly better in that the, the majority of the game plans for Tron to get to Tron. So the game plan of Tron is make Tron, make Tron, make Tron. And the way you do that most of the time is capitalizing on your your rocks or your eggs rather to cycle into green, to cast your Sylvan scrying. And there's so often, like if you if someone sticks a, a turn to Stony Silence on the play, it could invalidate tons of your strategy because you might not even be able to make green until you, you know, you get a forest or something like that because you can't activate, yep. you can't activate your, your chromatic sphere or chromatic star to, to make green. And you're just sitting back and, and waiting for your forest, one of your four or five forests. It's just not going to get you there. What about blood moon in that mix of cards? Damping sphere is probably slightly better than blood moon against Tron, but blood moon has wider application against a certain metagame than Damping Sphere does. So when Blood Moon comes out, you can hit three mana, you can hit three color mana bases pretty more strongly than Damping Sphere can. Right, but Damping Sphere, on the other hand, can attack uh, things that want to cast a lot of spells, like Storm or even Arclight Phoenix or any of that kind of stuff. So it's definitely, you know, flavor to taste. Yeah. Because Blood Moon isn't as good against Storm or Arclight Phoenix decks, for example. Yeah, so. I, th- I think right now Damping Sphere is stronger. I think Blood Moon is not very strong right now. Oh, interesting. Okay. But but Zach, Zach could potentially disagree with me. He runs I, a lot I of them. I potentially disagree with you. <laughs> the two Blood Moon uh, players. I'll let Zach explain why. Yeah, I know. I mean, I'm sure Zach can explain it just as well as I could, but it's never not going to be bad, that card, unless we get into a two-color meta, which doesn't seem likely. And even against some two-color decks, I'd still bring it in. I think you're crazy. <laughs> it's just it's just it's 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 too slow. It's too expensive. It's too useless. Too often. I, but I beat you with it. I won a game because of it against specifically you. Well, that was when I was playing Tron. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so let's turn the page on on this this one. But I think that was a, that's a great a great kind of moment for the year that uh, a hate card that everybody loves to figure out what to do with. I want to talk about Creeping Chill, but we're going to talk about that when we talk about Dredge. Okay. Well, I mean, I think that those, that those you know, you could throw out there that the, um, should we say the rise of graveyard decks, the further rise of graveyard decks is sort of a, a fifth thing that, or a fourth thing that happened this year that was really big. If you look at that core of Faith of Saluting, Creeping Chill, Arc, Arclight Phoenix, stuff like that, it definitely led to a whole wing of 
strategies kind of being ascendant that were good before, but just not as varied maybe before this year. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's, it's weird what we can clump into graveyard decks. And we're going to talk about that as we, we break down kind of the GP results, which is ostensibly the main topic of our episode, <laughs> but we're, we're having a nice conversation about these cards already. Um, I think it's interesting what gets lumped in to graveyard decks, right? So we have things like dredge, Hollow One, Bridgevine, the the Is It Phoenix, um, and those all operate on pretty different axes. Um, Dredge and Bridgevine are potentially the closest because they want to get certain cards into the graveyard, whereas, as we talked about last week, Is It Phoenix doesn't need to have certain cards in its graveyard. Um, but I think Creeping Chill is one of those things where it really pumped it got dredged back into a place where it could it could win at least it could win for a couple of weeks when, before people were really preparing for it um and you know creeping chill essentially is a lightning helix for free for dredge as they mill it into their graveyard uncounterable <laughs> yeah, and, and uncounterable exactly it's stifleable you can you can nimbly obstruct it oh beautiful can, can you can come on can you oh it, it is a trigger that's interesting okay um yeah so basically like it makes like people's life totals something like 26 to 14 most of the time whereas the, you know on the dredge players end of things so and it really made in graveyard decks really made people have to play graveyard hate or certainly lose against at least something like dredge or bridgevine not necessarily hollow one and, and phoenix anyone have responses to that before we move on to start breaking down this data that we're going to talk about yeah, I just have, like, I guess, a little point. I think that uh, graveyard decks are super big, and I think it's worth considering main decking graveyard hate to a degree, depending on the meta you play in. I do, and it's been great for me. Also, I think that uh, a, a deck that's cool that's part of the graveyard decks is the Mono Blue Living End deck. I don't mm. think it puts up a ton of results, but I think it's a neat deck that can exist due to all the nonsense that's happened. I think it's underplayed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's hard to pilot, but it's very cool when it goes well. I mean, I think it's like Scred, right? Where it's like, it's easy to kind of just be like, this is a weird rogue strategy that's like tier three and not going to win. But, you know, I think we've seen it put up enough real results where it's probably just likely underplayed a little bit. Yeah, I think it's also very hard to play and hard to sequence things and like knowing when to hold up a cycle or a counter, yada, yada. Let's get to the meat of our topic today where we're going to talk about 2018. And so the, the meat of this topic is really really comes from someone who actually took the time on reddit to make an actual post with actual effort with data about the the 12 non-team gps in 2018 so what they did is they tallied up all the top eights and then they also took note of who eventually won the thing and so the, you know we know this is the necessarily the best way to assess the kind of absolute latest game or even kind of assess what happened over 2018 because it's only eight decks per GP. But it really lets us see what's winning over the year and see kind of trends and where things you know were and where they're headed. Does that make sense? Should we give this person a, a shout out before we talk about their article i think that's a really good idea so this person's name i they, they you, you 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 just did this to make one of us try to say this right? yes i did i can do it it's all right stan do it's it it's reddit user mudan hanyaku submitted to the oh man that's really to, good stan. uh the subreddit modern magic yeah and so thank you for your work yeah, and we'll we'll put we'll put links to this stuff in in the show notes. That's what podcast hosts say, right? So I'll I'll, t- I'll have to make sure to do that. Put it in the show notes so that you guys can easily find it. 
let's start with we'll just go what we're going to do is we're going to go from most winning to uh still fairly winning but not winning everything um and so what is surprising to me just with number one not with necessarily a bullet but number one with uh with 15 out of the 96 slots of the available top eights we have blue control based decks and that means uh jeskai control or blue white miracles and it, so they they were in fifteen top fifteen spots of the top eights. They didn't win anything, but you know we know that there's tons of variance in, in those things. So still fifteen out of ninety six spots is quite a few. Yeah. So basically, according to this article, blue control decks between Jeskai Control and Blue White Miracles had fifteen out of the ninety six top eight slots available this year to with, to have the most, which I think everybody on here is a little bit surprised about, right? You know what I'm su- I'm surprised mostly is that Jeskai Control was you know very slightly better and you know had one more top eight appearance than Miracles because you know we hear so much about Jeskai being kind of a pet deck for people that they can't put down and then that Miracles is the only viable and legit control deck in modern but it's clearly not the case especially we saw it even in those recent SCG modern opens where the you know really good pro players like Manfield and, and Nelson brought it because they want to just say like, I'm, I'm better than you. I can beat up on you knowing how to use these control cards against you. Yeah. I mean, you guys know that the whole reason, the whole way I started playing modern was with just guy control back in 2013. Right. Like everybody oh, yeah. knows that's oh, like yeah. my, my whole thing is like snapcaster mage, lightning bolt, all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, with Teferi getting printed this year, it was actually a, and search for his Kanta, too it was a huge boon to those decks i think personally and definitely made them feel like you know they, to, to me they had felt kind of tier two for a number of years so i had all these cards that were just kind of like sitting in my binder and i was like oh i really want to play lightning bolt and snapcaster mage and so that's how i ended up on grixis death shadow last year for the most part and um it was a lot of fun earlier this year to play it and feel like it was like this is a tier one deck again it feels really powerful and there's a lot of decks that i can beat a lot of creature decks that i can beat with this but um i I know stan took it to tournaments a lot more than i did and so i'm curious what his kind of feeling was eventually with a deck like jeskai yeah so it's a little bit of a blind spot because i haven't played the blue white version but now that celestial colonnade is on sale um i'll probably pick up a fourth copy and a copy of oust and then I'll have oust. blue white control ready, and uh, I might give it a shot. Everybody's been waiting for that oust to show up. <laughs> Card Kingdom yeah. has them on sale, one dollar. Yeah. Don't forget um, to get some peaks while you're at it. Yeah, peak and oust. <laughs> My experience with Jeskai was was fraught with very little success, and I kept running into the exact same issue where, and I really struggled to close the games, even if there was a period where I was in control of it. Uh, and then I felt like almost every game I was just siding in Baneslayer and Lyra. And then I kept asking myself, why am I not playing Baneslayer, Lyra, or even B-Click main deck? Over the course of the year, I began to subscribe to the notion that control is bad and modern and personally had way more success with more aggressive plans. Uh, the one pseudo... Um, exception to that is when I was playing Blue Moon and I had moderate success with that, but that's sort of aggro control counter burn swing with thing in the ice dot deck. Nice. 
Stan, and I don't mean to uh, put you on the spot here, but do you, because this is a learning podcast, do you think that's maybe a case of you trying to run before you can walk? Like, do you think that control is, I mean, we, we really see control in the, in the, have success in the hands of people who are really experienced with it or just extremely damn good magic players. And do you think that that's what it takes? Or do you think that the strategy is just flawed inherently? I wouldn't doubt that it's on me to be better with the deck. Um, and I've had a, an idea in the back of my head of making a list of every answer in Jeskai or Blue White and asking whether I want to spend that on creatures or non-creature spells and trying to create almost like a draft pick order list of what I want to counter, what I want to destroy. Um and I think a lot of those micro decisions are what separates the good control players from the bad. You know, there's something to be said, though, about a deck being easier to pilot and demanding fewer, you know, l- less time just thinking about minutia uh, rather than having clear lines. And if you can save brain power by knowing your lines, then you're probably converting that into some level of success rate. So my little small take on this, I, I totally think that in my case of, you know, I've often felt like I was not a good enough player to play control. So I, I definitely hear what you're saying there, Stan. And I, I feel like that's a long journey that you and I will both go on to try to become good control players over time. Right. But the thing I was going to say was, I think a little bit of the rise of Jeskai and fall of Jeskai is sort of linked up with humans sure. in some ways, mm-hmm. because <clears throat> what happened was, and we'll talk about this in the kind of next bucket, and maybe this is a good time to transition if we if we want to stop talking about control here, is um, what happened to the Aether Vial decks this year, which yeah. is with spirits coming in and sort of supplanting humans as that Aether Vial deck of choice, which has kind of become more and more clear in the last maybe six weeks or so, you know, wrath was pretty good against, against humans or having a package of wrath was pretty good against, against humans out of Jeskai, but against spirits, it's a little bit tougher because spell crawler can get it. Point removal is sometimes less good because many of the threats in spirits have hex proof or, you know, one of their yeah. Lords grants hex proof. Right. So you get this kind of like complicated thing that happens where the point removal gets worse and the wraths get worse at the same time. And that's just kind of a nightmare, I think, for a deck like Jeskai in particular. And guys, we haven't talked about Teferi much at all. And I really think that's he's kind of the true control walker in modern right now. And he kind of he, he basically gives all the layups or I mean gives the alley oops to Jace to like slam dunk now and then. But I think I think he's the guy who's controlling the game. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. It's his plus one where you untap two lands, it's so stupid good because there's so many powerful one and two mana spells in that deck. So you can like hold up a opt and a path, or you can hold up a negate or so on and so forth. Like there's so many options that he gives you and it's just, it's very good. So I love Teferi as someone who's played both of these decks here and there casually with friends and stuff like that. When I haven't been able to go to tournaments, I will say, I think the best control walker in modern might be search for his Kanta, but <laughs> maybe you can just sort of set that aside for a different discussion late, later on where we, where we talk about all those guys because search for his Kanta is pretty awesome too. Yeah. People talk about how good search for his Kanta is. Um, and one of the hardest decisions I've always had to make when I'm playing just guy is do I cast it on turn two? Because if I can, and I'm not punished, it 
takes me so far ahead. But then if I miscalculate and I am punished, it sends me really far behind because turn two can be, or turn three, if you know, depending on player draw is so important in modern that, uh, you know, that's just one of those tiny, uh, decision points that people don't realize what they're getting into when they play modern that can be so punishing and there's no clear heuristics on it you know it's like everything is so contextual and control forcing you to make all these contextual decisions all the time is why i think it separates the the men from the boys the adults from the children (laughs) there we go Yeah, let's, let's not be gender specific here. Uh, let's put a pit on that one because I think that's a good thing to talk about in a future level up part for a future episode. Um, but like Dave was saying, let's let's dive into the Aether Vial decks that are right behind these blue control decks. Uh, humans and Bant Spirits form most of them. I think there was like an odd taxes based, you know, taxes style deck, uh, 13 of the 96 top eight slots. And so we know since kind of late 2017, when Ixalan was released, humans has been just a, just a tier one staple. At, at one point, you know, you remember me, I was complaining, not necessarily complaining. I didn't think humans was busted, but no, I probably did, <laughs> but it was, you know, it was probably having like a legitimate 11 to 13% competitive metagame share, which is when we've seen Watsi take actions against things like Infect, where it was like, okay, we got to get Gitaxian Pro out of here. It's just, it's too good. It lets them do too many broken things. And so in the late 2017, um, Humans in its current form was uh, generated, and you know, Collins Mullins started, he, he made the deck, and it instantly was, oh, this is the real deal. And it really has been the most consistent deck throughout 2018 i'd stay still even even though it doesn't have the same ridiculous metagame share it's just consistently always there it's always going to have you know five to eight percent of a room's metagame share and it's not going anywhere anytime soon yeah among individual decks it is in the top five for top eight appearances tied with blue white at six top eight appearances over the course of the year Yes. I mean, it's just, it's always going to be a good choice. It's always been, it's always, it's going to be there until something hates it out a little bit more. But I I mean, we see, we see new humans being released all the time because, you know, they're going to make humans. It's a game made for humans. They want characters (laughs) people can, they want people, characters people can identify with. Right. So they're going to keep releasing them. And it's always, you know, it's always one step away from, from being something I can just slot right into that deck. Right. So what happened to cause this shift between humans and bad spirits? Yes, or the shift, or what, or what drove humans down? What drove what drove humans to switch over to banned spirits for the most part? In my, I mean, guess what's on my mind as far as being what caused that? Supreme Phantom. Yeah, yes. the pizza boy himself. Yes, I will agree with the, that. The the spirit with peppers and sausage and onions, Supreme, um, <laughs> showed showed up, and suddenly spirits had four, had eight lords. And it became like, oh, wow, we can have Merfolk, but it's flying and they have disruption. So it's sort of like a combination of all of what was good about humans and what was good about Merfolk in one spot in one place. Yeah, and, and even more than that, uh, Anger of the Gods, which I run in my deck and is a good sweeper typically against des- decks like that, he will typically push them and himself all out of Anger range. So the game becomes unwinnable essentially for a deck like mine. Right. Yeah, it's, it's so good. I love, I mean, the three power on the Pizza Boy is so good. Like, it, it's, he only costs, yeah, oh, thank you. He only costs, we only cost one in the blue. And you can stick that against a burn deck and just shore up against their, their two power attackers, make some waste a bolt on it if they really need to. 
it's pretty good. What, what's crazy though, is that Banned Spirits essentially was its current form in like August is when it started showing up and it's already won two GPs. It's top aided five of them. Yes. And it's, it's only been like four months. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I just finally completed my band spirits deck in paper after playing it online for a while. And I'm definitely excited to take that out and, and play it. I mean, I don't have horizon canopies cause I'm not made of gold. Yeah. How much do you regret not picking up that when iconic masters came out and we were like, Oh, this set sucks. Yeah. Oh, you know who did though? Shane. You know, did. We did your boy Shane, you know, your boy Shane got two at like 32 bucks. I wish I had three. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've basically vacillated between playing uh, a, a black green mid range deck spirits and Tron when I get out to the LGS yeah. now and then, and spirits is definitely it's what's good about it is it's like, it's fun. It's really fun. It is like, fun. I don't get, it's not boring. It's, you don't feel like you're like, um, cheesing someone like I do when I play Tron, you, you feel like you have to think and you get to play with fun creatures. You get to act at instant speed a ton of times. You get to cast collected company and spin the wheel. It does. It, it ticks all sorts of boxes for, I think people who want to have fun, but also want to play with like a really true tier one strategy right yeah. now. I was just going to say, let's not forget that band spirits can cast, can cast collected company and the humans deck cannot because it needs so many yeah. non spell casting lands to be able to, to support the mana base of the humans where spirits doesn't need that as much. And then it really lets you play powerful sideboard cards, which spirit, exactly. which uh, humans has a really hard time doing. Right. So like you can play, like you mentioned the aforementioned uh, stony silence, you know, the rest in peace to shut down graveyard decks, the counter spells, um, you know, that that's, and it lets you play, you don't even have to play all your spirits. You can play some of the, the tricksy humans as well. If you want to dilute your spirit strategy a little bit, like reflector mage, which shows up even in main decks now, or like a Gaddic Teague or a Knight of autumn. Absolutely. So that, I think that's good. It's still going to be good. Um, you guys want to go on to the next bucket? All right. So next on our list is creature aggro based decks. And so that ties the vile decks with uh, 13 of the 96 slots, but it does so over more, more, more disparate decks. We have five different decks. We got bogles, affinity, elves, hardened scales, which is a, the new variant of affinity that I can't really speak much to and good old infect my first love. Um, and so, you know, we, we know what these decks are doing. None of us would ever play any of these decks, right? Uh, I play elves every once in a while. What are you talking about? <laughs> what, what in the world are you saying? Are you right speaking? Now? I can't believe you. I thought I knew you. I identify elves with Stan. Like when Stan plays other things, I think it's really weird. When I first started getting into modern, uh, shortly after meeting you guys, and before I built my first meta deck, I had like a bad black green uh, elves deck that used to be standard. Um, and I remember stealing a few games from Shane's old modern Abzan deck with it. And now black green elves has only gotten better. And when that happened earlier this year, I tried to capitalize on that moment. So that's my one experience piloting a creature aggro deck. So let me talk to Stan for a minute about this. Stan, Stan, so you you took this to tournaments a number of times, though, right? Especially in the first half of the year when people sort of didn't see it coming. Yes, I did. How was it? 
Yeah, it was good. It was really good for a while. Uh, it was so good that I ended up taking it to a PPTQ or RPTQ. I'm not sure what the difference is right now, but I, I ended up eating it at that PTQ. But uh, at the LGS level, I grabbed a fair amount of three ones. I think I got a four row with it because um, it can be very, very fast. And it's it started innovating a little bit when Core 19 came out and they printed Clan Caller. Is anyone actually running that? Are people actually running Clan Caller? It's pretty popular. Like almost every elves list that I see in a 5 list or in a top eight, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the vast majority of them are running Clan Callers now. That's surprising to me. I don't know why. I just, I, I can't evaluate cards. Do any of you guys have exposure to hardened scales affinity? I, I've, I, I played classic affinity as actually my first modern deck a, a long while back. Um, but it wasn't really my style and I sold out of the expensive bits, but so I haven't really played it versus hardened scales. Um, I haven't really played against hardened scales. Have any of you guys seen much of it? I played against it uh, a few times at the dice dojo. Yeah. What's your experience versus it? What do you think it's trying to do? Uh, I think it seems good. I think I I think what it's a little bit different is it's because it's more in on the combo with hardened scales and uh, I'm so sorry. What's the one man artifact? Oh yeah, uh, fabrication module. Yeah, thank you, fabrication module and hardened scales. The I think that's really cool, but I feel like because of that, they're also running like the one one arc bound for one and some other not so great stuff. Yeah. So I feel like they're more they're more all in on it, but they can have more clunky hands than a normal affinity can. Yeah, I've watched it on stream several times just to see how the deck works. I've never played it because I don't have mox moxes, basically. Yeah. But um it's pretty insane what you can do with like a hangerback walker and an right. artbound ravager out of nowhere. You can sort of like just you can really go really, really fast when you have a hardened scales on turn one and some of the really some of the powerful cards that come up. The one thing I was gonna ask you, Zach, about this whole bucket of stuff is this just like when you see that people are playing a lot of decks like this are you just licking your chops when you're playing <laughs> scred because these seem like the kind of decks that just you kind of roll over yeah absolutely like uh like i said for the most part the the biggest issues are when creatures can get bigger than board wipes so on boggles there's times they're gonna have a four four and turn two and i can't do anything about that i'm gonna yeah. lose and similar for why uh, the Supreme Phantom is so good right now is because it takes everything out of anger range. So I'm going to wonder if maybe the deck should switch over to something else or we'll see what gets printed, etc. But yeah, for the most part, these are definitely decks that I I have so much removals, both spot and sweepers, that it's just very good and very easy. Yeah, exactly. What do you guys think? Do you guys think Hardened Scales is underplayed right now? I've I've heard you know people that I respect talk about Hardened Scales being you know one of the the best linear decks right now? And is it people just not wanting to pivot over? Like I, I, at the last PPTQ I played maybe two or three months ago, you know, I still saw traditional affinity in the room, but not hardened scales. Is that your guys' experience as well? Or what do you think people are doing with hardened scales? Well, online, I haven't faced either deck in the last six weeks. That's, that's surprising. That's really surprising. And that's probably doing a league every three days, maybe. So I don't, you know, I don't play every day, but, every three days basically. And I, I haven't faced either one of those decks in what is that 45 or 50 matches. That's surprising. And it's not expensive online either, by the way, no. those, uh, those decks are not. So 
Affinity was always one of those decks that people said was, you know, it's been there since the format's in- inception and it's really not going to go anywhere. And it really kind of has. It's it's definitely not something you're going to see every week. It's not something at the top of the, the metagame uh, percentage list on Goldfish or anything like that. I think here in Chicago, at least, um, Hardened Scales is similar to KCI where you might see one player every once in a while, but... It's just not very popular in the local meta, at least at the LGS level. And it tends to get more popular once you start playing in the PTQs or GP or ACG circuit. So looking at this category of decks, guys, I see you know five styles of decks that are just trying to get the job done. They're trying to goldfish and beat down and not really interact with their opponent too much. And I don't think this style of deck is going anywhere in modern. It might just appear in a different uh, style of deck for that particular tournament. What do you think? Totally agree. I think the one that's underplayed on this list is actually in fact. Yeah, I mean, with the with when when a metagame doesn't have a lot of interaction, you want to be playing in fact. That's for sure. Right. So I think right now I would try that one out. The meta seems bad for in fact because despite all the debate over how good control is, it's still a fair share of the meta, and in fact is pretty weak to spot removal. Well, I I will say online right now, or and I don't, I don't think it's that much of the meta today. I think if you look at it in the whole year, there is a lot of blue white control. But in my experience online, it's I haven't pl- I've barely played any control decks recently either. Maybe four or five times. Yeah. So I want to get to my favorite style of bad deck, um, that being black mid-range decks, black base mid-range decks. And so we have 12 of our 96 top eight slots being represented by these black mid-range decks, which I think are pretty much tied together by hand disruption. So we have Thoughtseize and Inquisition of Kozilek. And so what they, you know, what these decks are trying to do is stop their opponent's strategy while advancing their own strategy. And they do that via removal or hand disruption or, you know, sweepers, whatever they have. And you know, they have answers in their decks to what their opponent's questions are, right? And so some of those are doing this more aggressively, like Grixis Death Shadow, and some of these are doing have done this over an extreme grind, like we see Abzan and Mardu Pyromancer. And so in the top eight lists over the year, we saw some pretty equal representation from the Death Shadow decks, the Abzan decks, the Mardu Pyromancer, the Jund, the Traverse Shadow, and the classic you know, Black Green Rock decks. Were you guys surprised by this? Were you surprised by the fact that these decks keep showing up or what were you thinking? I mean, I think that that people still play a lot of these decks mostly because of Grixis Death Shadow and Marduk Pyromancer at this point. I mean, those are sort of last year's deck and the deck of the first half of this year in kind of one bucket, right? I don't know if I agree with you, Dave, because I think people really play these decks because they like to play these decks and they're going to keep showing up whether or not they're truly powerful. Yeah. But Martin Pyromancer was killing it in like the spring. Yeah. I mean, that's because humans was 11% of the metagame. Right. Right. Same time. Jeskai was good. I don't know. What do you guys see right now when you go to a store like Zach, if you played against a lot of these decks lately or. Yeah. I mean, there, I think that like, uh, like Shane said, there's always going to be decks like this around, um, hand disruptions, very good against most decks and following that up with like a goy for a threat or anything good is also good. So I think it's just the inherent, like, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. How, how good turn one hand disruption is in this format to this day. I mean, like 
getting rid of uh, hardened scales out of Infinity's hand, like that's huge, right? Like all of a sudden, like their whole game plan is whack now. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things where you know, like like everyone always says, you can just draw the wrong part of your deck, right? That's kind of the inherent. Sure. That's the inherent negative to a deck that has a pile of answers. Primarily, I mean, you have you have some threats that you're presenting, but ultimately your answers need to align with the questions that other people are asking. And much like control, um, you have to have the right answers or you have to draw the right answers at the right time or draw the right balance between your answers and your threats to actually present a clock while disrupting your opponent. And sometimes that can be really challenging with a black green mid range deck or a black based mid range deck rather. So I think like Dave was getting at Mardu Pyromancer was fairly big for a short period of time. And I think part of that is piggybacking on the the popularity of, of Jerry Thompson, uh, his you know well-deserved popularity as a, as a player with Pyromancer and his, his uh, the growing popularity of his podcast kind of led people to get a lot of exposure to it. Yeah. I mean, I was playing that deck before he played it, but <laughs> and sure. it totally killed humans too. And it totally just beat up on humans, but like it didn't really help. I don't think it helps uh, uh, Mardudes as as a deck when Tron's always around. It's consistently around. It's even with all of the hate that Watsi keeps printing, uh, Tron sticks around, and, and Mardudes has like a twenty to thirty percent win rate against it. I think that's one thing that keeps it down, or has, has brought it back down to earth as well. I mean, I I will just say this: I am not super stoked to play decks in this no. bucket. Right now, I would much rather play um, Spirits or Phoenix exactly. than, you know, I have I have black-green. I would get it out just to play it with friends, but I'm not going to play something this passive right now. I, I even took a Death Shadow through a league recently, oh, really? and I think it's still a very good deck. But, um, you know, I think there's stuff that's just probably a little bit more adaptable. Yeah, I think, I mean, you know that I love these decks. Like, I... I have black green midrange i have jund i played obzon for a while i've played grixis death shadow for i played i played all these decks i played all the decks in this bucket i played traverse shadow and you know i like to think about you know what's the best thoughtsies deck right now if there's even such a thing like you know abzan's dead it's too slow it's only good when lingering souls is good and there's not really a lot of spot removal right now that's really trying to shut down these strategies and so Abzan's off the table. It only it only was on the list because of a couple early appearances, like way early in the year in like a European GP. You know, Mardu's the anti-humans hate. It's too slow and, and it gets destroyed by Tron. Jund hurts itself too much. It's its mana base is super painful. It's still playing too fairly. Like you have to have those threats. The answers line up with the threats. I think what's we we have seen the rock show up. As it, and we've seen it in the modern challenges online. We've seen it show up in some of these GPs. And I think the reason for that is that it's a less painful while being slightly less aggressive Jund. Um, and you still have to have the right answers, right? But you don't kill yourself with your mana base as much. That lets you play more Thought Seizes, which is just fundamentally more powerful than Inquisition of Kozilek. Let's you play Field of Ruin because it's a two-color deck and Assassin's Trophy in the same deck. And so using those two cards, you can pretty quickly run your opponents out of basics and just have them be straight up, you know, uh, Path to Exile, not even Path to Exile, just straight up. I mean, I can't even think of the right example of it. It's better than Swords to Plowshares. It's just a card that kills things for no downside, right? I think <laughs> what you're looking for is Vindicate is the card. <laughs> Thank that you. does that. Thank you, Dave. 
So I mean, like the so the rock is probably like the best fair mid range deck. I don't know if that's saying that much, right? Yeah. So what? I, go ahead, Dave. Uh, I was just gonna say it, it's mostly that you can play that. Uh, you have m- your main deck ready to go up against Tron and other big mana decks that I think gives you an advantage yeah. here. Exactly. But it doesn't it doesn't go great against main deck against uh, great uh, decks looking to abuse the graveyard or things like that. So. I mean, that's why people are throwing in like a few Nihil spell bombs now and then, right? But like, I, I hate diluting my deck with something that essentially costs two to cycle for like a slight upside potentially. Yeah. I think what's, you talked about Death Shadow, and I think that we saw Death Shadow rear its head again recently, right? So it's it's kind of morphed itself back into this really aggressive deck where it has like a couple teamer battle rages main deck. It's only doing three snapcaster mages. It only has a single Coligan's command. So it's not grinding as hard, but it's really trying to burst and, and trample over with the teamer battle rage to yeah. get over like the creature based strategies. Stan, you've been thinking about moving into this deck. Uh, what do you think about what, you, what intrigues you about it? Well, it's a couple of things. I mean, one of them is just practicality. I have Scalding Tarns and Snapcaster Mages. Yep. <laughs> and so practical. So practical. Three, three Thoughtsies. So it's moving into it is kind of financially viable. Um, you know, it's not often that a modern deck only costs like a couple hundred bucks. Um, but also, I'm kind of curious to see how a very linear aggro deck plays out that has hand disruption and removal um it, it's not quite as wide as elves is but uh it's not wide at all man yeah i mean you're lucky if you have two creatures uh usually you're just swinging with one right right is, yeah. that, that's my understanding yeah, yeah i yeah. don't know it just seemed it seemed neat like it's it, it has bolts and it has snapcasters which are two cards <laughs> that i love playing and uh i've never you had a chance buddy. to cast <laughs> yeah, you know, you know how I feel. Yeah. So, adding a turn one thoughtsies to the mix seems like something I've uh, never got to do, and have been constantly lamenting when my opponents do. Uh, and I'm just ready to join that club. I love oh, it. Man, you got to join just just like last week, the Faithless Looting Club. Now you can be in the Thoughtsies Club. Hey, guess what? Grix's Death Shadow right. has Faithless Looting in it too. Oh, it's oh, it, is that is that like kind of set into stone now? There's generally like, there's two of them. In there, they basically run four thought scour to faithless, and honestly, I think, I think the main reason is because they have uh, because faithless is kind of like two extra thought scours. It's not really the other way around because what yeah. you really are trying to do is just cheat out your Tassiger or your fish pretty early. Yeah, I don't even see Tassiger appearing in the deck very much these days. I thought it, they still ran it as a one of. Do they not even bother anymore? It it, it comes up every once in a while. Uh, I've been paying attention to the decks results lately um and i would say that it's missing more often than not interesting so i I will say one quick thing is that i actually played against grixis death shadow zoo or not grixis death shadow zoo sorry let me try one more time death shadow zoo today online and that was a wild thing to see as a little blast from the past um so maybe some of those death shadow strategies are actually migrating that way a little bit too 
I mean, that seems to be the case just with the Grixis version, um, you know, being a little bit more aggressive and not as grindy. So I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, and I think something that's underplayed, speaking of grind, is probably the Traverse space decks that want to use Traverse the Uvenwald to just really, you know, just to tutor up those creatures late game while still having the burst power of like the team or battle raid strategy. Yeah. So I think I think it, it's really probably the smarter move than like a Jund or a rock-based strategy. But I think people just either don't want to, you know, they, they, they don't want to take that to a tournament because they don't know how to play it or they don't want to have that much of a life loss or it's just not their style of decks. I'm surprised that it's not doing more than it is. So going down to our next category of decks, we have these engine combo decks, so which is essentially Ironworks and Storm. And Stan, I know you've played a lot of Storm I don't know if you played it much in 2018. Was that more of a 2017 for you? Indeed it was. It was my first competitive modern deck and basically gave me the mana base to play basically everything else I've played in modern since then. Why do you stop playing it? Um, It just, it gave me too many headaches. Really the very specific thing that made me stop was I did an SCG regional and I played it for nine rounds and it took so much out of me that I put down magic for about a month. Um, Mm. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It was, it was a lot of decision points and similar to our conversation about control earlier. I think it's a deck that rewards the people who, understand the metagame really well and can adapt quickly um, and also can make a lot of decisions uh, that seem like minutia but can have long-term impacts on the game. Uh, and being the first deck to play, I mean, certainly not impossible to learn. I don't think I was necessarily ready for it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Zach, is that something that you've experienced where like decks can just be too mentally taxing for you. I just want to take a little side note at, at the, the topic that Stan brought up. Yeah, no, I definitely think so. Um, I play Scred as my main deck, but for my other two decks, I have Burn and Blue Tron. And Blue Tron's a deck I enjoy playing, but if I feel like if I'm not in the right mental space for it, it's easy to make small little misplays or like, for instance, like not activating something during your opponent's end step and like drawing a card and like, oh, it's too late. I missed that window and now I can't win this turn anymore. And like stuff like that, where if you're on top of it and like you're with it, it's a good deck, but I feel like it really punishes any slip ups you have. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, that's that's why sometimes I'll, if I'm choosing a tournament deck, I'm not necessarily going to take the deck that involves the most decisions, even if it gives me a couple more percentage points of equity. Like I, I'll probably take like Tron to a, to, a, to a tournament because I know how it works. I don't have to think too hard. And I just have to think mainly about my mulligan decisions, but really, you know, it can be mentally exhausting. And I think that these style of decks are pretty exhausting, both for the player and the opponent. Um, that's one reason that people are are really um, kind of not necessarily angry, but they get frustrated by playing uh, the, the Quark Clan Ironworks deck, KCI decks uh, that's uh, in this category. So we saw, you know, it's KCI has a whopping nine top eights, out of the year and two wins. Right. And I think that's while it was still gaining popularity and gaining awareness of just how popular it really is and how power, excuse me, how powerful it really is. And it just wins through hate. Right. So I think I'm seeing KCI as really at a breaking point where people realize it's not really that hard to play. 
while the power level is pretty much off the charts when compared to the other decks of modern. Um, have you guys been hearing the same things I have, like on podcasts and on you know tournament results and things like that? Like, what are you hearing about KCI? Yeah, I, I think we listen to the same podcasts because <laughs> yeah, you're, yeah, you're probably right. That's that's been my take as well. It, it's odd though that I I've never played it, and I have played a lot of games of modern in 2018, and I've seen people next to me playing against it, and for whatever reason, I'm not paired up against it, and I'm paired up against the wacky-ish all the time. Um, which I think kind of speaks to it being underplayed and maybe on some level people don't always have the cards to easily pivot into it, you know, unless you were playing affinity previously and you, you, then you don't have as much to pick up because, uh, the Mox Opals are already available, um, or, or ancient strings for that matter. But I guess that's a, a cheaper card. Yeah. But, it got reprinted. Yeah. I don't know, even KCI and uh, Engineered Explosives or Grove of the Burn Willows, like, those aren't cheap. And um, EE is in a lot of decks, but it's like one or two of in the sideboard. And KCI plays them three or more in the main. I, I really think it's a, it's a difficulty, like a, a supposed difficulty hurdle that people are just like, well, this this deck doesn't seem that fun to play while simultaneously being hard to play, Right. But I think that that I think that those walls are slowly being broken down, and I'm I am willing to bet in 2019 we see something address KCI because it's winning at like 58 to 60 percent win rates based on kind of the mediocre GP uh, public polling data that we get from those people that are putting together those reports, and that's really surprising. Yeah, I would just say honestly, every time I play against it, it feels like hopeless to me like no joke like i feel like after a certain point i just watch them win and i just shrug and go yep it's happening i can't do anything and it's happening and it's just uh it's quite a feeling yeah i think the thing that the thing that makes it really challenging is just that it wins through hate right right like with 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 kci being a mana ability that's one thing it can operate at like faster than instant speed it can get you can get around what the split second even mana abilities so like yeah exactly it's just, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a crazy thing so man yeah mana abilities don't use the stack so it's pretty crazy i wouldn't be surprised to see it put up uh become a higher percentage of the metagame and people begin clamoring for some kind of ban because it's, it's, you know, it's one of those things where your opponent can have a 10 minute turn and still lose. Like if they, if they fizzle out right. and that's just, not, that's not fun for, for broadcast or for playing. So let's move on to big mana. Another one of my favorite things. And also you play some, some mono blue Tron over there, Zach. So that had 12 out of the 96 slots, primarily with green Tron, uh, green Tron, Tron, tying KCI with nine top eights and a single win over the, the year. Um, we also saw Amulet Titans show up again. It's another extremely powerful deck that people think is really hard to play that had two GP top eights and, you know, Tron's still Tron, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, I mean, four of those, four of those appearances, which includes one of the, the black green Tron were from GP Leon, which is before Jason blood, blood, blood braid elf were unbanned. Right. But sure. Tron's still sticking around. Tron's not going anywhere. I think, um, I mean, it's a pretty based on some stats. It seems like it's pretty even. It's pretty much a 50, 50 match, maybe slightly better than 50 at some times, but I think people like playing it. It's easy to play. It's powerful. It does fun things. Yeah, I will agree with all that. I, I get the feeling that with Damping Sphere specifically, um, or maybe even Alpine Moon, 
Watsi seems more interested in providing more hate against Tron than outright banning anything. Um, which makes me think Agent Stirrings might be safe. And, you know, we mentioned KCI potential bannings and what might come from there. And people talk about Agent Stirrings quite a lot. But um, I don't know if Agent Stirrings is going anywhere. And uh, But Tron might have a harder time if Watsi continues this trend of making more cards that hit it directly. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I don't think Tron's really an ancient Stirrings deck, right? I think I've won I've won plenty of games of of Tron without casting a single ancient Stirrings. I think the thing that makes the thing that makes KCI tick is KCI, right? I mean, we've seen historically that Wizards doesn't like to ban the card; it'll ban support cards or enabling cards, like with uh, Amulet. But I think in the KCI case, we might see one of the, the primary fundamental cards of the strategy go simply because it might be able to exist just fine without maybe some of the support cards. So um, Stan, what's this question you have about correlation? Bring that up for me, would you? Yeah. So you, you mentioned that uh, a lot of Tron's success was before the Jace and Bloodbraid unbanning. Um, and I think yeah. it's worth noting that probably has more to do with Bloodbraid than Jace because Tron eats control decks for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. That, that's what that's what that's what people say. People people no, people say this, but I think I think the blue white control matchup is actually even to maybe in the blue white controls favor, and that really is based around um, Field of Ruin, which they can cast super easily, and, and they're and often take running off far of yes. Oh yeah, yeah. They're they're running that. I mean, they can they can path some of your your few important creature threats. Um, some of your you know a, a turn three Karn is still a turn three Karn, right? But yeah. I think I think that I've faced down blue white control a number of times with Tron, and it's, it's never a walk in the park. Um, mainly because they have ways to disrupt your strategy. Whether it's counter spells, whether it's path to exile, whether it's field of ruin, um, you you can't you can't have a hard time against them. And and then if 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 they take over a game with the Jace while taking you off Tron, I mean you're just top decking while they're while they're fate sealing you, and it doesn't that's not a good position to be in. Yeah, it does occur to me that the blue white removal suite against Tron in particular is is quite nice because if you're playing any of the creatures, um, World Breaker, Worm Coil specifically or, or i don't know thought not maybe post board uh ulamog ulamog yeah i guess path to exile and uh, the miracles are great clean and cheap answers oh yeah yeah you have to have oh, go ahead zach oh i have a i just have a question about uh walkers in that deck do you think that jace is better than teferi versus tron Versus Tron, I think so. Um, I think that Jace can pretty quickly take over a game, and it's 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 mainly through the fate ceiling. Like if like if you're sure. off Tron, if you're off Tron, you need to be, and you're like running low on cards or out of cards. You have to draw into the right thing. Like if you if you're on two Tron lands and you know uh, an egg, you need to cycle into green to make a, a to cast a Sylvan Scrying or an ancient or an ancient stirrings. If they're controlling what you're drawing off the top of the deck, you've got to get really lucky sure. to to draw into that next land, or else they're just gonna they're they're gonna fate seal you and leave you with a redundant Tron land, or leave you with something you can't cast that costs ten mana. Um, and so that's it's really rough. It's it's a truly depressing place to be. 
Yeah, and for the record, Jace's Fate Seal ability, if if I can share a level moment that I had with listeners, it's that when people first play Jace, I think they undervalue how good Fate Seal is. Even if your opponent has two or three cards in hand, being able to shut them off from a really good answer on the draw um, can be a huge play. It gets a little trickier if you're casting Jace on turn four um, because he can be quite easy to kill, especially since there's still a fair amount of Bolt in the format. Um, But yeah, I don't know. I started winning more games after casting Jace as I learned to Fate Seal my opponents more often. And oftentimes, like once I get my opponents down to one or two cards in hand, uh, I'm just taking up Jace as a chance I can and counting on other cards to draw spells. Guys, we're running real long, so I'm going to move us along into Red Aggro, which has uh, eight slots of our 96. Burn shows up five times, good old Burn. And Red Green Aldrazi, if you guys remember that uh, short-lived classic, taking three of the slots. So, you know, you know Burn, what, you know what Burn does. It casts Burn spells, turns creatures sideways, nothing really unfair happening. Red Green Aldrazi is basically gone. I don't really know why. Um, Burn always kicks around, even though some stats show it to be kind of a sub-50% deck right now. And Zach, I know that you you play some Burn. What are you thinking about Burn? I think Burn is a fun deck to play, and if you bring it to a local tournament or on Magic Online, you'll do fine. But I think that against a lot of the really good meta decks, it might fall behind. It hasn't had a solid main deck printing in a while. I looked over all the decks that got at the top eight from that list we mentioned, which we'll give, well, I assume we'll give credit for uh, all that's all the list on there for burn. were like five to six cards different each. And like, that's spread out over the 75. Yeah. You know I mean, so they're pretty much identical and like one deck will have vexing devil and one will have graveyard hate in the sideboard, etc. But I feel like overall the deck is good, but needs something that it hasn't gotten a little bit. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I have been saying about Burn lately to you all is that the last thing it really got was in Cons of Tarkir with like Monastery Swift Spear. And, you know, there's that Spell Mastery sideboard card. Um, but besides that, nothing's really changing about Burn while other decks have, have gotten tools and have gotten more powerful. I think it's really interesting how much a new printing uh, is more than just a change in the deck, but it can innovate the deck as well. Because a lot of the burn cards and the reason the burn deck is still around is, or the reason that burn deck is still around is because all those cards are still relatively good in that package. Um, but there might be, you know, if you squint, there could be an argument to be made that the mono red Arclight deck that's running main board lava spikes is kind of the innovation burn has been waiting for, just, you know, a different strategy, uh, not unlike the way hardened scales change the strategy for classic affinity yeah i don't think you're wrong at all i think that's a very it's it's just weird to see that it it changes shell so totally you know what i mean that like there's not a lot like uh i mean are, are the list running uh eidolon and the great revel in that deck an arc light yes no it it would kill okay. you <laughs> immediately <laughs> <laughs> well fair enough yeah un- unlike burn where you're still only more or less casting one perhaps two spells a turn. Uh, and that's why you can outrace your own idol on Arclight is still trying to cast three spells a turn as much as possible. I gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Zach, what's, what's like the number one tool you would want to see printed that you think would make burn better. Hmm. 
I feel like it would have to be, yeah, yeah, it'd have to be another four damage for two mana spell. And because like a Mega Boros Charm type deal where that card is good, but it's not seeing played in an Arclight build because the white's too much. You know what I mean? I feel like it'd have to be a card like that. And I feel like it'd have to be multicolored so it wouldn't just make all red burn decks better. What about a, yeah. what about a card like a braid that can go to the face uh, or hit a permanent? Um, yeah, yeah. It has to be something with the... Because you, know, you can main deck it. Um, but... Yeah, yeah but, but a braid can't hit players. Right. Yeah, that's what Stan's saying. Like, if what if you had an abrade that could hit players, right? Oh, well, that, that, yeah, you'd run that card. That's just very good. Yeah. Personally, I think Burn's just a little underpowered right now. Um, and also, while being... It's the kind of deck that, if you're extremely good at it, you can still, you know, get your share of wins, right? But I think that sure. it's easy... It's really easy to mess up. And I think people undervalue that. So, like, if you're just, if you're just some schmo who plays Burn every once in a while... Or you know, or, or me, like I own Burn. If I just take it to some store, I'm going to make a lot of mistakes. I remember when Adrian Sullivan, uh, he wrote an article where he was saying, like, I've I watch Burn players make like an average of one mistake per turn, and if you know, with as few as few decisions as it seems like you make in a Burn deck, if you're making one one mess up a turn, that's saying something, right? So I think it's 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 not worth the ability to make those mistakes for a deck that is 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 struggling to break fifty percent in the stats that we have from like three or four GPs. So guys, in our last category, we're going to talk about tonight. We have the graveyard aggro decks, which have seven of the ninety six slots, and that's mixed between dredge. Hollow One, Bridgevine, and the Blue Red Phoenix deck, which we are not going to talk about because if you want an hour of content about Blue Red Phoenix, just go to our first episode from last week. We spent a lot of time talking about that. So these are essentially like the Faithless Looting decks. So, you know, they want to get creatures in the graveyard or capitalize on using their graveyard or discard synergies. So like, you know, Hollow One was a boogeyman kind of early in the year. It's based around discard and cycling to cast free hollow ones or get out really early Tassigers or uh, Grim Egg Anglers or power up your Flame Blade Adepts, things like that. We saw the the printing of Stitcher's Supplier in Corset 19 that made Bridgevine a lot more powerful and was, again, a really fast boogeyman. Um, people were pretty quickly clamoring for some kind of... of nerf to it or some kind of ban people were really up in arms about that but then right after that we saw in guilds of ravnica creeping chill was printed and which is like we said before like that free lightning helix for dredge and really forced players to have some kind of graveyard hate or almost certainly lose against the deck and then we have blue red phoenix you know ostensibly a graveyard deck that's been putting up big results really quickly already has two gp top eights and that scg open win within just a few months of being a thing I feel like this is one of those things where they like these graveyard decks, they flare up and, you know, dredge comes back. Creeping chill is there. People are winning with dredge and then everyone's packing their rest in pieces or everyone's even packing like a Tormod's crypt or, you know, other kind of, or their, the relic of progenitus or their night hill spell bombs. They're really trying to fight out the graveyards, which then has a lot of splash damage against things like Bridgevine, um, and potentially some minor splash damage against Phoenix or hollow one type decks, but they're still always there. Right. So it's, it's one of those things where you can't sleep on them. If you, if you don't pack, if you don't have the right hate or you don't draw your right, the right hate, then these decks can really run you over. Well, they say that dredge gets worse in games two and three, but I, I'm not sure how I 
have never beat it. Uh, maybe Zach has. Um, okay. I mean, Zach runs Anger of the Gods. Yeah, I run main deck Relic of Regenesis and Anger of the Gods. It's a pretty good matchup for me, but, but uh, it uh, losing popularity for uh, well, it's not losing popularity. It's well, I guess it just didn't win as many things as other decks did. I mean, it's not popular, right? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I guess I want to tie a bow on everything we've talked about. It's not easy to actually sketch a narrative throughout 2018, right? I mean, I think the the, the narrative I can think of is, you know, we early on we had Blue White Miracles and Jeskai Control looking like Tier 1 decks. And then I think other strategies came up to to squash that a little bit where they, there were, there were different decks operating at different axes, axes that the control decks couldn't handle. Um, we had then the challenge of the graveyard decks, whether that was Bridgevine or dredge coming back or blue red Phoenix. I think that to me, along with the, the growing popularity of KCI is the big story of modern for this year where we see these, we see decks that want to win quickly. They are more or less gold fishing and they're doing it in ways that are hard for the opponents to stop because they're doing it at, on a unique axis, whether that's um, the bridge vine, whether that's uh blue red Phoenix, where they have both graveyard and just spell based threats. Um, I think those decks aren't going anywhere specifically KCI and blue red Phoenix. I wouldn't be surprised if we see those become bigger players in the meta game next year. Yeah, I agree with that. I think the point of them, working on a different axis than other modern decks is very well put and very true. It's uh, it's just neat to see that uh, the way modern evolves more and more decks try to do very certain strange types of magic. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Zach, is is strangeness, right? Is, is novelty is one way to get a lot of win equity, where you, if you're coming in with something that people aren't prepared for, then you're going to get some, you're going to steal some wins. Absolutely. I think uh, piggybacking off of that, I would always still keep an eye on humans because they're going to print new humans in every set possibly for eternity. And if new cards and new tech are sometimes innovations rather than just updates, uh, you know, that's always a strategy you need to keep in the back of your head. Absolutely. I'm hopeful for a few spooky boys and girls in this set as well uh, with Orzov and things like that. I'm hoping for a few spirits that can potentially keep continue to improve the spirits deck as well. So we lost Dave a little while ago because he has a family and things come up and we record at night. So, you know, kids want milk sometimes. Um, but I will sign off for myself. Good talking to you all about this. Um, it's great to assess what happened in 2018. Um, and as we go into the next year, we'll uh, continue to bring you all um, our listeners, what's happening in the metagame, break down decks that are coming out and that are making their appearances in these top eights, whether it's SCG or GPs. And uh, we'll talk to you all soon. Anything you guys need to say? I love all my fans. <laughs> Don't forget, uh, manatraders.com, <laughs> manatraders. our unofficial. <laughs> .com.
Dot-com, our unofficial sponsors. Um, if we just keep saying it, you know, we click our heels, then we'll be in Kansas with uh, free Manitrader sponsors one of these days. So again, we'll talk to you guys soon. Um, take care. Bye-bye.